Thanks for coming back to episode 26. This week we have a special guest. Retired Colonel Ken Bryson is joining us again. He was in class 8605 with me. While I didn't know him at the time, we connected just two years later and the rest is history. I hope you enjoy his look at our experience. Ken had a stellar career. He held positions across a wide spectrum of leadership to culminate with group command after being promoted to full colonel. This is a senior leadership position that few attain. Notably, even the top two graduates from our class didn't attain that position. I'll end the session with some headlines and a call to action. Before we hear from Ken, a little more about my experience at OTS. 90 days goes by pretty fast, especially since it's broken up between upper and lower classes at the midpoint of the program. Imagine moving from a nearly pure training environment to a leadership practicum in a 24-7 environment. There are eyes and ears everywhere. The leadership experience not only is observed in the positions that everyone held throughout the last part of the course, there is an exercise called Project X. This is a leadership exercise that tests both leadership and followership. It also tests teamwork. Since you are commissioned at the bottom of the officer ladder, followership is very important. There are plenty of examples of lieutenants and even captains that, as the term goes, get ahead of their skis. These skills also are measured in the sports program that while athleticism helps, it's how the team performs over individual talent. Fast forward to a large part of my career in the education and training world, Looking back at OTS, the program has many aspects for evaluators to measure a trainee's potential, and they're interwoven pretty nicely. Of course, in the middle of it, that may not seem to be the case. Before long, we are on the glide path to the finish line. It is my sense that most are into their trainee wing jobs, academics, and the schedule, that the tradition from trainee to commissioned officer takes place in those last two weeks. As a flight that was doing well by almost every standard, we felt both confident and ready to get to the finish line. By this time, the Air Force also has some confidence that the end of the tunnel is getting close enough to focus on what's next for each person after OTS. Some are seeking rated slots to be a pilot or navigator, and the rest of the folk are filling out their dream sheet. A dream sheet is to express your desires for what occupational specialty you prefer and where you'd like to be stationed. For me, my occupational specialty area was pretty much set in my mind. With seven years of experience in services, I had services as my first choice. Personnel was my second, and I don't recall the third. For bases, of course, I had Langley, since I still had a house there, and two other bases on the East Coast. More on what the Air Force thought in a bit. Colonel Ken Bryson is here, and I'd like to hear from him and his perspective on OTS from a non-prior service trainee. Ken, how was it like for you, coming from civilian life? Well, uh, I'm sure everybody's uh, arrival experience and perspective of OTS is much different than the person before them or after them. Uh, in my case, 
I went to OTS mostly because of, I needed a job with insurance. Uh, I know a lot of people go there uh, because of, of a feeling of patriotism or wanting to serve their country. And I'll be real honest, I had, uh, I had lost a job and my wife was pregnant and my sister was in the service. And I asked if the uh, service would allow people with pregnant wives in so we could get the insurance. And she's the one that told me to apply for OTS. So my perspective of OTS was a pretty naive one uh, going into the actual experience. Did the recruiters tell you anything about what to expect when you got to OTS? Uh, he gave me the standard, uh, you know, make sure you bring this. This is uh, this is different than anything you've ever experienced. Uh, you know, try not to be, uh, you know, persistent on having things done a certain way. The Air Force wants to see your leadership, et cetera, et cetera. And in a lot of ways, he was right. In a lot of ways, he was he was a little bit uh, sketchy on the details because it was a lot different than I thought it was going to be after arrival. So since you were married and were already living in a family experience, so when you got to training and you had um, – to start doing things, literally folding your clothes a certain way, learning about the military and the customs and courtesies. What was that like for you? It's <laughs> uh, funny you bring that up. Uh, I learned very quickly that the military was way, way different than the life I was experiencing on the outside as a civilian. Uh, I arrived OTS uh, late. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> no, not the way you want to start your military career. I had gotten lost on my way to OTS. I arrived late after uh, folks had already got their haircuts. Oh my! And uh, yeah, they still let me in, and they—they they, actually I had a room all to myself. So I did what you know any college kid would do. I set up my room. I put up pictures. I. I thought I was all good to go. I made sure things and the next thing, man, my world became a whirlwind of just confusion and everything else. And that's when I learned I was I was in for something a little bit more than what I thought I was going to be in for. It was a very eye-opening experience my first 24 hours at I already laid out that we had a trainee configuration like an Air Force wing. And since you were on the wing staff, what can you share about that experience in any application to the real Air Force? And why did you choose to go on the wing staff? Well, uh, as far as application to the real Air Force, uh, I think the parallels there are uh, those of uh, in the higher leadership positions uh, are given are given tasks, and then the basically the rope to see how well you can do them. So you, they, you're in that leadership position to see how good your your leadership skills are for future leadership positions. So I'd say that's the parallel. Other than that, the OTS wing staff positions um, were a lot different than the real Air Force. I think the biggest takeaway is you know you're you're spending your first portion of OTS with a very uh, tight group and you you build uh, relationships and dependencies on those people to help you through your training all of a sudden you're pulled out of that you're put into a position 
and you're told, hey, you have more responsibilities, you have these requirements that you got to fulfill, plus all the ones you're doing for OTS, and you're thrown in in a completely different area, you're sleeping in a different area, a new roommate, and you lose all those people you've been depending on. Right. And it trains, it trains you to, to realize or it makes you realize that uh, the Air Force is a, a organization where everybody's kind of working towards the same goal and that you can't just depend on a small group. You have to depend on everybody that's in the organization. For mine, I was the OT public affairs uh, rep. So I, my task was to get information out to the OTs, et cetera, et cetera, just like a public relations person would do in a company. But also I had to come up with something to raise the esprit de corps of the OTS uh, trainee population while I was there, which really, uh, which was really challenging as I went through my, my very short period of time with the wing staff. Right. Well, that's pretty, that's, uh, that's obviously very different from what my experience was because I was always in the flight. And I agree what you're saying is that I can imagine that so much is done as a flight that when you're pulled out for a fair amount of time to do whatever job it is that you have, it's going to impact uh, what that flight's going to be doing going forward. So I'm sure it was uh, a, a unique challenge. It was. I, I think one of the cool things, though, is uh, I, I got to learn that, you know, you, you make these relationships with folks at one level of an organization. If you're put up or across to another organization, you still have those relationships. It changes, but you still, you know, have those friends. You still have all those experts that you depended on that you can reach back to. But at the same time, you've got to understand your role compared to their role, which which they do a very good job of kind of highlighting as you go through that experience. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. The finish line is getting close. For the second time, I go through an accession program, and I'm part of an honor flight. Of course, we were proud of this, and our flight commander was as well since we were his first flight. Our team just came together. About the time we completed our dream sheet, some of us, me included, would put a second lieutenant bar on the inside of our flight cap. When you picked it up and put it on, you could feel it inside the cap, and it not only made you smile, it said, don't slow down now. The prize is within your grasp. For me, my first hope to get a commission was as an airman basic back maybe a year after that tragic accident in the dorm at Red Horse. That was almost a decade ago at this point, and for me, feeling that gold bar inside the flight cap gave a sense of accomplishment. A naive farm boy from upstate New York was going to be an Air Force officer. Alas, not quite yet, but soon. Looking back, the quote I noted in a previous episode of Annie Dufresne's Letter to Red in Shawshank about hope was part of my thinking well before that movie. It was near the final stage that we got our notification from the Air Force about what our jobs and bases were. So I hoped for services or personnel on the East Coast. The Air Force? They say they consider your preferences. I'm going to be an MWR officer. I didn't even know what that was. Well, 
Maybe they gave me that job so I could be stationed at Langley. Oh no, that was not the case. I was going to be stationed at, are you ready? Randolph Air Force Base. Do you know where Randolph Air Force Base is? Well, Lackland Air Force Base, where I was, is on the southwest side of San Antonio. Randolph Air Force Base is on the northeast side of San Antonio, 33 miles away. I'm going to travel the world. So, I'm going into a career field that I know nothing about to a base that initially I wasn't super thrilled with. I'm so excited. The next weekend, I decided to drive over. I'd never been on that side of San Antonio because last time I was in San Antonio, I was in basic military training. All I knew, it was the headquarters for Air Training Command, which is one of our major air commands, headquarters for the personnel center, so maybe I could talk to them about things, just kidding, and it was a training base for pilots. I do some research and MWR is stationed or is located in Pittsburgh Hall. I asked the gate guard where that is. He gives me directions. Since this is a weekend, of course, most offices are closed. So I drive up to the building and what do I see? I see several reserved parking spaces, which one would expect. Wait, am I reading this right? One says Director MWR. Well, that's not me. One says Deputy Director MWR. And one says, wait for it, Operations Officer. That's me. Was I going to have a reserve parking space as a second lieutenant? Parking on bases is sometimes hard to come by, and so maybe this wouldn't be so bad after all. You'll find out that the Air Force actually made a good choice for me, and next week we'll learn what MWR stands for and what my new job is. We're practicing for graduation. No one from my family is coming down because, well, I didn't think it was a big deal. As a prior service trainee, it just didn't seem worth it. At graduation, there is a military parade like you might see similar to parades on TV. After the formation passes the reviewing stand, they form at the opposite end of the field. And this is the most emotional part of the event. Or at least it was for me. The band, which is made up of trainees as an extracurricular activity, is playing this march. Even today, 37 years ago, I get emotional when I hear this song. We graduate on January 23rd, 1986. We march toward the reviewing stand. A funny thing is that those being commissioned from the band leave their instruments and join the formation. We take the oath of office, and in that split minute, we are second lieutenants in the United States Air Force. Mission accomplished. I want to get back to Ken and ask him what was the most memorable or rewarding aspect of his time at OTS. My most memorable aspect was the last formation walk to be given the oath of office and hearing the music from This Is My Country. What was the most memorable aspect of OTS for you? There, there are so many great memories from uh, OTS. And uh, 
looking back on it, uh, the most memorable aspect for me actually happened uh, after we did our formation and, and everything had started calming down because uh, my parents were able to come to the uh, OTS graduation and my wife, Haiti was there naturally. So it was, it was actually the realization looking at my parents and at Haiti that I had actually completed OTS and I was on a completely different track than I or, or my parents had ever thought I'd be on. You know, my dad was in the Navy, actually enlisted twice, you know, World War II and then the 50s, the late 50s. So he knew about the military. And I think just just kind of seeing that pride in his eyes and the feeling of accomplishment that I was going into a next chapter, that is the most memorable thing that I take away from OTS. I think that uh, that makes a lot of sense, especially for parents who are veterans to see their kids follow their footsteps in some respect. And I also think that for those that were enlisted to see that their son or daughter becomes an officer, I think there is immense pride um, because yeah, it, so. parents want to do, want, want to make sure that it's better for their children. And for them, they would say they're going to have a better life in the military than I had. And my dad never really you know, pushed me towards the military or anything. And, uh, so, and I didn't really realize that it was a big deal, really, in my heart until I, I saw them at, at, after graduation. I really thank you again, Ken, for joining me. I think you'll have some really cool stories as we get stationed together, and we fast forward in a couple of episodes, so get ready. The next adventure begins. While the song, This Is My Country, has the lyrics, Land of My Birth, and This Is My Native Land, you might think that I wouldn't find the song so important. Setting those aside and embracing America as my land and my country still do fit those words. The ending, though, This Is My Country, Grandest on Earth, and the end, For This is my country to have and to hold. It makes great sense for those commissioned in the armed forces to both defend and be part of the protection of all the things that we hold and love as Americans. We've all heard the President of the United States take the oath of office on Inauguration Day. The military officer oath says, I, state your name, to solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I am about to enter. So help me God. A unique difference for the military enlisted oath adds, I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. What is unique about a military officer is that she or he is also an officer of the United States. For example, 
A military officer can notarize any document without being a notary. In addition, from major through general, they are also approved by the U.S. Senate and are in the congressional record. Here is another unique and interesting thing to observe about prior service versus other commissioned officers. You can kind of tell who is a prior service officer from the ribbons, otherwise known as awards and decorations, on their uniform. The training ribbon is awarded for any accession program, whether it's the Air Force Academy, ROTC, OTS, basic training, or one of the unique professional sources. If a person has gone through two accession programs, they will wear an oak leaf cluster on that ribbon. Maybe a person had prior service in another military service. In that case, they would have a unique training ribbon for their service because all ribbons earned from any military service are worn on the Air Force uniform. So, it's a dead giveaway. The other two ribbons may or may not add to your detective work. The Good Conduct Medal is only given to enlisted personnel every three years should they have good conduct. Anyone wearing that ribbon has at least three years of enlisted service. Lastly, a second lieutenant who is wearing a longevity ribbon, which is given to every Air Force member every four years, had at least four years of enlisted service or more, if they also have an oak leaf cluster. I had a training ribbon with an oak leaf cluster, a good conduct medal with an oak leaf cluster, because I had more than six years of service, and one longevity ribbon because I had between four and eight years in my enlisted career. So it was a dead giveaway. A photo is posted in this week's episode photos. I'm off to Randolph. We'll see what happens next week after my very, very long 30-mile trip and what happens to my home in Hampton. I can't afford to have two places at my pay grade. Before I close for the week, you know that I am the boy in the trash can almost 65 years ago in a land far away. This past week wasn't a great news week for newborns in three states in this country. It's not political. It's about humanity. I don't know the story of the woman who gave me birth, nor those who left these infants this last week. The story for the infants, though, can be an outcome that doesn't have to be one where they're left to perish. It can be a story of someone who will flourish. Let's hope the following headlines can be a thing of the past. Last week in Tennessee, an abandoned baby who is, re- is receiving care at a local hospital. This past week on January 26th in North Carolina, sadly, a newborn was found deceased next to railroad tracks in East Rockingham. Then on January 27th in New Mexico, there was a newborn who was found dead early in the morning. On the 28th, a child was found in a dumpster in Oklahoma. While not a newborn, the child was within the safe haven time limit. On January 29th, a newborn was found abandoned in Florida with her placenta still attached. Authorities estimate she was found within an hour of being born. One every single day. These are just a few that make the news. 
Each of these states have safe haven laws that allow for anonymous drop-off within varied periods of time after birth. Safe haven baby boxes enhance this with safe boxes where the child can be left anonymously, where an alert sounds and the infant is rescued within minutes at that location. They continue to expand their locations as as jurisdictions approve and funding is available. I'm focused on helping them expand here in Virginia. Please, visit the Safe Haven Baby Boxes link in the description. Together, we can. By example, an Indiana team spent over a year raising $10,000 for a baby box. A newborn was found inside that very box within six months. Listeners have shared that my podcast has had an impact in a couple of ways. I hope that awareness of these cases of abandoned newborns in trash cans and dumpsters and out in the middle of nowhere will bring a call to action. The world in 2023 is different from my world in 1958, and yet it is my perspective that by doing our part, however small, will mean that difficult road doesn't have to be quite so difficult. Until next week, remember what Cinderella's mom said, have courage and be kind.